Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit is committed to taking care of the needs of the Jewish people and building a vibrant Jewish future in Metro Detroit, in Israel, and around the world. The views and opinions of guests on our program are theirs alone and not intended to represent the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit. Hello and welcome to Fed Radio Detroit, your on-air community for all things Jewish in and around Metro Detroit. I'm Sam Dubin, joined today with my co-host, Federation President, virtually lovely as ever, Beverly Liss. Beverly, hello to you. Hello to you. Yeah, well, for our Kvel and Tell, tell me, Beverly, what have you what have you been up to? Well, as you know, I've been up north with my family of 12, soon to be 16 added on. And we're on a lake outside of Petoskey and everything seemed to be doing well until, let's see, we've had a few little um, bumps in the road. First of all, there wasn't a bump. I want to say a little squeak in the walls. And uh, one of my grandsons came running out of his room saying he kept hearing pattering in the walls. So it turned out where the house said it could handle 18, it's 18 plus 18 mice. And the kids are like going nuts from the mice. Call the exterminator. So I called the exterminator, exterminator came. That was the first bump in the road. Then my son has his boat up there and he goes, decides he's going to take a few of the kids and go fishing around six, six o'clock in the morning. So he heads out to the middle of the lake and his battery ran out in his, in his boat. And so he, he calls my daughter on the phone and my daughter gets in a kayak and kayaks out to the boat and attaches a rope to his boat and drags him back in. I mean, this is one strong, strong Jewish woman. Mm-hmm. And and then, and then let's see what else happened. Oh, a tornado hit right around where we were. And I was out in the lake kayaking. And all of a sudden I'm thinking the wind is coming at me. I don't know if I can get back. And then a guy came by me on a wave runner and he said, do you need help? And I said, "Uh uh-huh. And so he tied his wave runner to my kayak and got me back in time for this horrible storm where we lost power and didn't have water, weren't able to use the restrooms, wash the dishes, do the the clothes. So yesterday morning, we hopped in the car and came back to Bloomfield. And we just got, I just got noticed that the power went back on. So we'll go back tomorrow morning. But in the meantime, the kids have been texting each other and me and saying they, they're sick that they're not there. It was the best vacation. They don't care about the mice. They don't care about the tornadoes. They don't care about, uh, oh, no, no curtains on the windows. They don't care about no air conditioning. They're ready for camp priceless. That's what we call ourselves. That's great. Well, yeah. Good quality family time transcends any mice or any bad motors or even a tornado. That's the lesson there, I think. I said, you know, we just need to adapt. This is a time with a COVID that we keep saying pivoting and adapting. Well, the List family did it. That's all we know how to do now. Well, I'm glad you guys are uh, practicing what you're preaching. That's true. Well, I hope you have a great time uh, the rest of your remainder of the time up north. Let's see if you could beat that one. I can't. I can't. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to share about a wonderful documentary that I watched last night. Um, and I think a lot of our community can appreciate it. 
I should note before I even say it, it's not for younger people. It's a little graphic at times. Um, it's called Circus of Books. Um, it's on Netflix. And what it is, it's about a Jewish couple in outside of LA, LA area, that own a gay uh, bookstore and video store. And it's a documentary that focuses on so many things. It focuses on the distress of owning a business during hard times. It focuses on the AIDS epidemic um, many, you know, a couple decades, a few decades ago. It focuses on uh, really personal evolution in acceptance and cover that all with the fact that it's, it's very Jewish. Um, so I think our listeners and I think our community would like it. I really liked it. I think it's only an hour and a half. Um, so it's a great documentary. It sounds great. What, it what year was it made? Recent. I think it came out in, in 2020. Um, okay. It could have been shot. In, it was probably shot in 2019. Circus of Books. So check it out. And I like it. So again, I can't beat uh, your adventurous story. You texted me the other day just saying adventure um, as it pertains to you coming back. And I didn't actually know what kind of the extent of, of what that adventure uh, entailed. So I'm glad you guys are safe. That's that's we're, scary. We're healthy. We're safe. Thank God. Good. Well, on that note, I'm going to introduce our uh, guest today. His name is Jay Kaplan. Jay is a staff attorney at the ACLU Project. And before I uh, bring Jay in here, um, Terry Gross uh, from Fe Fresh Air once said that you should never flatter your guest in the beginning. But I'm going to break that rule today because Jay Kaplan is an exception to that rule. Jay is the most optimistic, one of the most optimistic people I know on planet Earth. His personality lights up a room. It's, it's lighting up our Zoom room just looking at him in his little thumbnail picture. And I'm so excited to have Jay on the program today. So Jay Kaplan, welcome to Fed Radio Detroit. Oh, Sammy, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Oh, he calls me Sammy, by the way. A lot of close family and friends call me Sammy. So in case any listeners are confused, Jay <laughs> calls me Sammy. So Jay, thank you for being here. Okay. My well, pleasure. <laughs> Jay, I am very excited to have you. I've been reading up about you and all that you have accomplished. If you can just start with the beginning and how you became involved with this project uh, from the ACLU and and actually, where are you from? So I'm from the metropolitan Detroit area. I grew up in Southfield and I've spent my whole life in Michigan. And uh, I've been very fortunate in terms of my legal career. It's going to be 35 years that I've been since I became a lawyer and uh, I needed to find my niche. And I knew that my niche was in the area of social justice. And so the whole trajectory of my career has been doing public interest law. I started out working for legal services and represented indigent tenants in housing court. And then I worked for an agency called Michigan Protection and Advocacy Service. They're a disability rights agency. And there we started the first HIV AIDS legal service program. Sam, he was mentioning about decades ago, people living and dying from AIDS. That was the time that we started that uh, to try to assist people who were being discriminated against and who needed help with legal documents and to be able to get um, on social security. And then from there, 
there, I was very fortunate that the ACLU of Michigan started up its own LGBT legal project in 2001. Uh, the ACLU is a national organization, has been doing LGBT rights work for decades, and um, they, they cover all the states, but there's only four state affiliate ACLUs that have their own standalone LGBT legal projects, focusing specifically on those issues in their own states. And Michigan is one of those. Why and, is that? Why do you think that is? I think that was uh, our, our then leadership, Carrie Moss. She looked at what was happening. This is back in 2000 in Michigan. She saw our state becoming more and more politically conservative. She saw the increase in a number of groups that had settled in Michigan uh, that had positions anti-LGBT rights, uh, like the American Family Association. And she thought it would be helpful to have a legal project focusing on Michigan-specific LGBT issues. Okay. Jay, you grew up in Southfield. My dad grew up in Oak Park. I mean, you're around the same age as my dad. Um, during that time, I know and I understand the, the communal aspect of growing up in Southfield and Oak Park um, in those kind of Jewish areas in Metro Detroit. So given that, how has your upbringing um, in, in Jewish Detroit influenced the way that you see the world today and, and the work that you do? I think very much so. I think, you know, I went to religious school, Temple Bethel, from nursery school all the way to high school, and I ended up teaching religious school there. But, you know, the concept of tikkun olam, repair the world, um, you know, to, to look out for the interests of other people, to make sure that people are being treated fairly, and, you know, of course, the principles of justice. I think that was also instilled by my mom and dad, too. I mean, we always talk politics at home, and you know, I'm old enough to have grown up. I was very young, but during, you know, the big civil rights uh, movement, the protests in the Vietnam War, you know, where these kinds of issues were being discussed at home and uh, kind of just developing. I always knew that um, if I was going to become an attorney, I wanted to do something that was going to help other people. So it was always there. And those values that I was taught, you know, at home, as well as, you know, through religious school, um, I, that, that's always been with me. It's great. The Declaration of Independence does end with justice for all. Right. So, yes. So you're you're following that. And I, and I think um, our core v values of Judaism is pretty much the same thing. Follows that same tractate. Justice shall thou pursue. Right. Yeah, for sure. Now, in your practice now at the ACLU, do you, does you being brought up in a, a Jewish traditional home um, help you with any of your cases? Does it guide you in the way you practice? Well, I think it just, you know, I probably don't think about it that often, but I, I think just the way that I view the world, you know, that there that there is a role to play and that we do know, I, I mean, I've lived a very fortunate, privileged life by virtue of my race, by economic status. And, but there are a lot of people that aren't, who haven't been given this privilege and certain fortunate circumstances. So I always feel a really strong sense of responsibility that you have to give out back and you have to ensure that the world, it's a fair playing ground for all people. So, so that's always with me every day. Yeah, for sure. I want to give a little um, antidote from, from my own life and, and kind of my history with Jay, if I may, for a moment. Um, so in addition to the podcast, I also created Next Gen Pride, which, which, provides a space and a community for young adult LGBT Jews 
through Federation. And when I was starting that, I wanted to get input from the best leaders, from the best Jewish leaders, from the best gay Jewish leaders, um, and those in the LGBT community that I could in Detroit. And Jay was one of those people that I reached out to. Um, and Jay, I don't even know, this was many years ago. So I, maybe you remember. I do remember. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Um, so we had dinner and I, we might've met one time before that, but I mean, we, we were basically strangers at that point. Um, but we had dinner and Jay was the most welcoming and giving person of his own advice and his uh, life experience. And that's always stuck with me. So, you know, in the beginning, in terms of, I, I shouldn't flatter people in the beginning. Um, that's why it's so impossible. Like I'm unbiased, or I, I should say I'm biased in this situation. Jay is such a great person. So I'm going to- Sam, what advice did you get from Jay? Well, I, I mean, I think similar to what you're, what you're hearing now. Um, I, I don't necessarily- um, remember the concrete advice, but I remember him giving his own experiences and how that dictates the way he lives his life and how he practices now. So that's really what's stuck with me um, with with uh, with Jay. But let me let me ask this to you, Jay. I'm going to preface it by saying that you know we're we're a generation apart. Um, not to give away either of our ages, but we're a generation apart. And you know, I came out as gay only a little over five years ago, and a month after I came out, um, same-sex marriage was ruled legal. So I basically never lived in a world where it wasn't legal for me to get married. And you're talking about privilege. That's a privilege. Um, you know, I, I never had to think of myself as other or less than in that, in that world. Um, and you didn't grow up for many years as a gay man in that world. You had Presumably, I would assume many friends die and, and your temporaries die of AIDS. Um, and that's just a world that I cannot even fathom, um, given, given the life that I've, that I've led. Um, so give me a sense, give us a sense during that time, what was it like to grow up in that generation where you did feel othered, uh, othered where you were disenfranchised, where you had so many of your temporaries dying of a disease that you knew nothing about. Um, just give us a sense of what that was like in that moment for you. Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting, Sammy, because I came out a little bit later, too. I was in my late 20s, and this was like at the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. And it was kind of through doing this work that I was able to, you know, to the process of coming out and being part of the community. And what I saw it was such a a frightening time where all these young men, mostly young men, I shouldn't just limit it just to men, but were dying. And you saw by, you know, the fact that the law didn't recognize the relationships they had and didn't provide protections for them. So I would see situations where, where somebody might've been in a long-term relationship with their partner, they died. And then the family would swoop in and they would take everything. They would take the house. They would take, you know, they would make all the decisions concerning the funeral and the burial. And it was as if this relationship, as if this person in their life didn't even exist. And it was heartbreaking and, and dealing with hospitals when they wouldn't recognize uh, the partner and the partner couldn't be in the room and wouldn't might have been able to even be able to say goodbye. It, it was just heartbreaking. You know, the two things happening at the same time. And, and as we know, a, a terrible illness at that time, like AIDS, that, that takes away everything from a person, their, their ability physically to be able to do things and to be able to, to actually be themselves and then to have that, those, you know, 
very important relationships not even being recognized or acknowledged uh, by the law. And I really do believe that the whole marriage equality movement really started out of what happened during, you know, the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, where where people were just disregarded and the lack of humanity that was provided to them and the lack of dignity that often was 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 not afforded, you know, to relationships. Mm-hmm. So, Jay, we're in 2020. Do And Sammy said that you're very much of an optimist. Um how do you look at where the state is, not the state of Michigan, but where we are today in those circumstances? Is it easier when um, someone from that community, the LGBTQ community, gets married, that, that it's easier for them to share property, to share children, to share and be as looked at legally as as my husband and I. And, and if you want to um, tell us about any cases, I, I'm, I'm married to an attorney, so I know a lot of stuff is um, not spoken about. You know, it's private. But if, if you could share a couple of cases that may show where we've been and where we are now. Sure, sure. Well, we certainly have made incredible strides towards LGBT rights, in, in particularly in the last decade as a result of um, you know different Supreme Court decisions. The fact that same-sex couples do have the option to get legally married and the protections that are afforded through marriage, it makes a great difference. We have to, though, recognize the fact that there was a lot of collateral damage that was done to same-sex couples, their relationships, their families, as a result of not being able to get married. So one of the things we have through marriage is that when you have a child that's born during your marriage, both people, both spouses are legally recognized. For same-sex couples who are raising children, but their relationship ended, like some relationships end, before marriage equality was available, Still, that other parent that might have been raising the children, and I realize it's been five years since marriage equality, but that one other person is not legally recognized at law. And should there be, sometimes in a breakup, people don't always act nice to each other. Should the one legal parent decide that that other parent not be able to see the child anymore? They don't have any remedy in Michigan. Michigan will not recognize them as a parent. That's still what we have today. You have long-term relationships, too, where maybe the spouse died before marriage equality was available. And whereas with marriage, you know, you can get a spousal share of Social Security benefits, things like that, pensions. None of that stuff is retroactively available. So so there's been, you know, there's, people have been hurting, and not just the same-sex couples, but the children of these relationships for many years. We still are dealing with issues in Michigan where Michigan law has not taken into account the marriage equality decision. And in other words, the terminology and how they recognize people. So, um, you know, we have words that talk about paternity of children, but if you have a same-sex couple of two females, we don't have terminology that recognize, you know, that type of situation. Um, our, our laws in Michigan don't understand when you have, let's say once again, a same-sex lesbian couple, they decide to have children together and they have to use artificial reproduction. This isn't a surrogacy parenthood, but some courts have chosen to view it that way and not recognize the other person as a parent. So there's still more work to be done. And I just wanted to also say, Beverly, I think there was a perception when the marriage equality decision came out five years ago, 
It's done. We have LGBT rights. There's nothing more to do. We still have a lot more to do. Michigan is one of 29 out of 50 states that doesn't have explicit mention of sexual orientation and gender identity in our civil rights laws. So that means we, you know, without that explicit mention, we have to rely on courts to interpret whether or not we're protected against discrimination. We just got a historic decision a month ago in the Bostock case. And one of them was an ACLU case uh, involving a transgender woman who was fired from her job where the court said in employment discrimination, LGBT people are protected against sex discrimination in employment under federal civil rights laws. But we need to take that case and we need to challenge discrimination in other contexts like housing, like education, like public accommodations and health care. We, we still have a lot more work to do. I also have to mention that the current administration, the Trump administration, has issued a number of policy provisions that will that do permit discrimination against LGBT people in health care and accessing health insurance and accessing uh, homeless shelters for transgender people. So and there's also an effort to try to justify discrimination against LGBT people in the name of religion. In other words, because of my religious belief, I don't have to adhere to a civil rights law, even if what I'm doing is not religious activity. And we have litigation happening in Michigan right now involving the foster care system. So Michigan contracts with private agencies to render foster care services, including faith-based agencies. And some of the faith-based agencies are arguing we should have a government contract, but we don't have to work with gay, gay couples. And if you allow that form of discrimination, then you can find other, you can go down a terrible slippery slope where you can use other reasons. So in South Carolina recently, the state permitted a faith-based agency to refuse to work with a Jewish couple because of their religious beliefs. You know, we have very strong protections for religious beliefs under our constitution, but we've never allowed, our courts have never allowed that that religious belief to be used as a sword to harm other people in non-religious activity. So I am an optimistic person, but we still have a long way to go. Jay, where do you get the cases from? Where are your referrals? Um, People hear about us. They call. They let us know about it. We work with various agencies. Um, If we're we're looking for a particular issue, we might try to reach out on social media. If someone has a story or someone has experienced, you know, a, a, a particular incident of discrimination. But it's pretty much word of mouth. You know, now we've been around for almost 20 years. So so people know that we exist and uh, they know, you know, where to find us. But we also do a great deal of outreach to the LGBT community, working with different agencies to let them know that we're here and that we provide services. Jay, the Supreme Court case that you mentioned um, recently um, that the ACLU uh, fought for was was the case of Amy Stevens, who got fired as a funeral director from from her job. She recently uh, died. She died a few months ago, but uh, her legacy in that case will live on forever. And I think that's what's so special about that case is that her life uh, and her name is in the record books. Um, yeah. well, I have a two part question for you. I'm curious how how you feel about her legacy and and if you could touch on. Amy as a person, because I've seen interviews um, and I've read interviews from her and uh, she's inspirational to say the least, um, regardless of, of how informed you are on the issue. She as a person is inspirational. Um, so if you could share a little bit about Amy as a person and then also 
I haven't talked to anyone. I mean, I've talked to you, but not about this. That's argued in, in front of the Supreme Court. So from a non-policy side, I guess, if you could just give us like the scope of what it's like to just be at the Supreme Court in front of the justices and kind of what that landscape looks like, because I think that's something that most people have no idea and are, uh, are totally ignorant about. So if you could kind of touch on, on those two subjects. Sure. Well, that was the first time for me to see an argument before the United States Supreme Court. And I think it's important to recognize that Amy Stevens case is the first transgender case that went before the United States Supreme Court. The first decision from the United States Supreme Court regarding the rights of transgender people. So very historically significant. You know, Amy has a very special place in my heart. We met in 2013. When she was fired from her job, she contacted the ACLU. And uh, my my first impression was how uh, impeccably that she carried herself and how professional she was, how proud she was of the work that she did. She was a funeral director as well as an embalmer. And this was a mission for her. She really saw that her role was to help families in probably the most difficult time emotionally for, for them to try to ease that pain that they're feeling and to help them grieve in ways that we're going to be healthy and to have that job, have that role taken away from her because she had struggled so long trying to be her authentic self. She lived as Amy outside of work, but she felt she couldn't be herself at work until it just got to be so difficult. She came out to her employer and then just was unceremoniously fired. And then unfortunately what happened, a lot of times when we hear about these cases, we don't think about what happens when you get fired from your job? Well, you suffer a great deal of economic consequences, which with what happened to Amy, had to, she had to sell off property, she lost her health insurance, and then she experienced a decline in her health. She, she was diagnosed with kidney failure, she had to go on dialysis, she had respiratory issues. And, but I think what was most significant to her was her sense of identity, her purpose in life was kind of taken away from her. And I think she found a second purpose through this case. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to Amy until the Supreme Court took up this case. And then people wanted to hear her story and she was always available and willing to tell that story with grace and with not just about her, about she wanted to redress a wrong that was done to her, but she really wanted to make a difference for other transgender people. Uh, you know, around the world and in this country. And she really grew into that role. And Amy experienced a lot of health issues while this whole process was going on. She was constantly asked to do interviews. She was always willing to do so as much as her health would permit. We were together in Washington, D.C. the day before the arguments. She did back-to-back -back interviews until she basically collapsed. She had, to, she had to rest. We didn't even know if she'd be okay to make the arguments the next day, but, but she did. She was there. And um, the most wonderful thing I'll always remember is after these arguments, we came out on the Supreme Court steps, and there were thousands of people out there cheering her, saying, we love you, Amy, and people coming up to her, a lot of young people, a lot of young transgender people saying, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And that meant so much to her. And um, I spoke to Amy a couple of weeks before she passed away. She wanted to let me know that hospice was coming out. And she, she expressed the same wish that she would live long enough to be able to read this opinion. 
Unfortunately, that was not meant to be, but I know she would have been very pleased with this. And had we not been successful, she would, you know, she told, she said this, we're just going to keep on fighting. Um, so going to the Supreme Court, it's, it's, it was an incredible experience. It's not nearly as big the room that you think it is. And to listen to the arguments, um, David Cole, our, the legal director of the National ACLU, argued the case. Sitting at his table were two openly transgender attorneys who worked very closely on this case in developing legal strategy, also first a first before the United States Supreme Court. And to, uh, you know, a lot of work goes into preparing to argue before the Supreme Court, figuring out your arguments and the way that it works, and then listening to each of the justice and looking for any signs. Are there any possibility how this is going to turn out? And, you know, does this look good? Does that look bad? And just seeing those justices in person, you're pretty close. You're not, they're not too far away from you. And um, we were, you know, cautiously optimistic about what might happen. Um, and then to get the decision... Uh, a six to three decision. And uh, it was, that was a surprise to us. And we were just so gratified that the court did do the right thing, not only for gay and lesbian employees who get fired for being who they are, but also for transgender people. And uh, we hope we can use this decision to challenge other forms of discrimination. But it's probably a once in a lifetime thing for me. And um, I'm so grateful that I was able to to be there with Amy at that time uh, in support. And she was at least able to experience not only seeing the argument, but to, to experience all the love and support that she got from the community. Absolutely. Jay, thank you for uh, walking us through the that moment. It, I, I have chills thinking about it. I walked into the Supreme Court one time um, with my husband. It was his dream to, to, to go in and sit and, and walk through the halls and what, what history that oh. it has. And what a moment that had to be for, for you. And it just, I just have to express that it was not just for you, not just for Sammy, but for all of us. We all felt proud of, of our Supreme Court for coming to such a decision and proud of, of Judge Roberts and um, just bow down at that moment. There's, it seems like there's a lot of work still to be done, right? Yes, yes. What can we do? You know, is there a call for action for just regular citizens like us that feel that we want to see justice done for the LGBT community? How can we how can we help? What can we do? Well, I think there's two immediate pieces of things that we need to do. We need to have explicit protections in our civil rights laws that say they include sexual orientation and gender identity. So there's a federal piece of legislation called the Equality Act that would do that with federal civil rights laws. It passed the House of Representatives with more than just the minimal majority that they needed. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has refused to move this bill forward to even allow it to have a hearing. President Trump has indicated that if it passed the Senate, he would veto it. So we need to have our voices heard to make sure that uh, our elected officials in our federal Congress know about this. The same thing holds true in Michigan. For more than 30 years, there's been legislation introduced that would amend our state civil rights laws to explicitly include sexual orientation and gender identity. What happens is it gets introduced, 
And the leadership, the legislative leadership refuses to allow it even to have a committee hearing to move forward. And that's where we are today with our Michigan legislature. So we need to have our voices heard. Uh, we, the Jewish community has always been an ally on the cause of civil rights, and we need to continue to, to do so um, because this is a matter of social justice. And we need to speak out and we need to, to, to stand up for policies that are fair and policies that are just. And vote. And, and vote. vote. Absolutely. Absolutely. Vote. Because the consequences of this election have never been more clear. If you look back to this same time, July of 2016, the horizon for LGBT rights was looking a great deal differently depending on the outcome of the election. We have been forced to take a number of steps backwards as a result of the consequences of elections. So a person's vote counts, but it's so important that people vote informed too. You have to figure out what are your values? What are important to you? What, you know, how do you live your life? And to see where some of the candidates stand on these issues and to make informed choices. Jay, no group is a monolith, and, and the Detroit Jewish community is no exception to that. So there'll be folks listening to this podcast who have all different po- political persuasions, liberal, conservative, economically, racially. I mean, we have all different groups listening to this podcast in, in our community. Um, so how do we have productive conversations and talk with each other rather than talk past each other? Because in this world especially with COVID and what we're seeing with racial uprisings right now. I think it's so easy to talk past each other. And um, you have a real talent of talking with people and not past them. So how do we do that, especially with people um, who we may not agree with, not just politically, but our whole worldview is different. How do we have those productive conversations? It, this is such a polarized time, and I'd like to tell you that it's an easy thing. I, I struggle with it myself. I think if we try to have conversations where people can express their opinions, but also if we can try to find what might we share in common, what are some values that we share? I mean, everybody has people that are important to them in their lives. They have loved ones. They have family members that they care about. Uh, I think everybody has viewpoints regarding justice and, and what they consider to be fair. And if we can try to see if we can find some common ground to it. Um, I think just the emotional temperature has been raised so much, particularly in the past couple of years. Um, it, it, it can be very difficult. But um I think we do so much better when we can have some of these constructive conversations, when we can maybe agree to disagree and to try to look anywhere we can to find something that we might share in common. I think that's always a, I think that's always a good start. But I think if we paint one side as, you know, as an ogre because of their viewpoints, uh, we're probably not going to get anywhere. But, you know, I'll admit even myself, you know, the emotion of, you know, that's tied. And when you think about individuals' lives that are impacted by certain policies, it's hard sometimes to listen to this. It's hard. You can understand where someone's coming from, but it can be more difficult sometimes to accept that. And so uh, I think we all try to make a little bit more of an effort and to maybe be a little bit more respectful towards each other and, 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 and to see what we share as opposed to how we differ. That, that, that probably is a good first step. Very wise words. Um, if, if I can, can we go back to um, the Supreme Court case and, and Amy? Do you think that there'll be some kind of documentary made about her life. And yeah, 
and when I heard heard you talking about it, I think you're the one that should should do it. <laughs> well, it, it's 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 a very special story. I, you know, just having observed you know Amy over the last now it's you know seven years. It's a it's kind of a beautiful story how someone has their, you know, a very important purpose in their life that was taken away from them due to discrimination, and yet towards the end of her life, finds a second purpose that's very, very meaningful to her. And uh, like I said, it uh, there was so many wonderful things, uh, you know, observing Amy, and the, she was quite the storyteller. She, she studied to be a preacher, so she was a natural doing these interviews, um, you know, answering questions just a little bit different way, but uh, just her incredible sense of responsibility, you know, really feeling that I'm doing this because I, I care about my community, and I want to make a better life for my transgender brothers and sisters and, and for the young people. Um, I think it would be a pretty inspiring story. Um, but uh, I don't know. No, no one, no one has approached us yet with, re, with regarding that. And, you know, Amy's wife is Donna is, is still grieving the loss of Amy. You know, it was just, it was, uh, it was a little bit more than two months ago. And so maybe over time. You know what, Jay, when, when I hear the way you tell the story, I feel like Amy had so much trust in you. Well, you know, we got to know each other over time. I think she she knew she was in good hands with the ACLU staff. I, I mean, it was like going back to school, law school for me, to just sit in on these meetings where the attorneys talked about strategy. I mean, they were very sensitive to to the cause of transgender rights. They wanted to make sure that the right language was being used, that this was culturally competent, these arguments. But they also wanted to see what might be the most effective argument that could work with some of these justices and the care and concern that they had. I think Amy really saw that. I think she felt that um, she, you know, that people had her back. And uh, I really enjoyed Amy's company. We had a lot of fun. We did a lot of interviews together. Um, She had a great sense of humor. And uh, it was just, it was a wonderful privilege to, to get to know her. Jay, you know what, you, you know, I started off the conversation with you saying, I hope that that you could educate me and educate our listeners. And 100% you did. I still have more to learn. (laughs) I do too. Um, Your optimism and optimism in general is such an antidote to the world that we're living in right now. I mean, it's such a cruel place uh, for a good number of people. how are you able to keep that optimism afloat with so much disturbing news that we see every day? Like, I, I, I guess, I don't know. What would you say to that? It's challenging for me to, you know, seeing this. I don't think, see how you can exist in this world and, and not have it impact you. The suffering with the COVID-19, the economic consequences, the, the, you know, the prevalence of racism that continues to remain in our country. It's, and, you know, what I see is the lack of leadership uh, at the national level on so many in so many ways. But I, I also believe there's a lot of good people in this world. It's, you know, there are a lot of good people doing the right thing. Um, I'm very lucky to work with some wonderful people at the ACLU who also, you know, care about the world and care about these issues, be it immigration, be it, you know, criminal justice reform. So I, I really do believe that good will triumph over over the bad stuff. And um, I do believe if you do talk to have an opportunity to talk to people and explain things, 
that many people will come to understand, um, you know, what needs to be done and uh, why we need to take a stand on things. And uh, I think feeling pessimistic or feeling that all hope is lost, it, it's, for myself personally, it's not helpful. It doesn't move me forward. I have to have something to look forward to. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously a very political person. I'm right now looking forward to, you know, maybe a change that might happen in November. Um, but also just that we all have a role to play to try to make a better world. And, uh, and nothing of all this stuff that's happening can take away what I value or what I think is important. No particular leader can, can make me try to think otherwise or change my view of the world. And for me, that's very reassuring, too. I keep thinking about the children of the parents when one spouse dies. And, you know, do they, the children have any rights in these um, marriages to say, you know, that this one was, these were both my parents. Mm -hmm. This is my father. This is my mother. You know, are they able to have any rights well, there's there's a guardian ad litem that's always appointed in when, when they consider things to be a right. custody dispute. But for these parents who are not able to marry when they were in a relationship where only one parent is recognized, the way the law works is the court will say, I don't even have to consider your claim. You have no legal standing even to be in the courtroom. And so you're right. Who gets harmed are the children? Can you imagine having a parent just taken away from you overnight? No, and no. You, you, you're, that person was erased from your life and you know, had no say about it. And in Michigan courts, even today, and I realize as time goes on, we're going to see less and less of these situations as you know, marriage equality decision, you know, get more time has gone on with that. But, but just to have somebody in your life, someone who's important in your life being erased, it wasn't in your best interest no, in they, most, for the most part. Damaged. They're damaged. You know, they become sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And we've we've seen that in heterosexual divorces too, where we were you know where the two spouses they they want to get back at each other and they use children right, right. as pawns and it's it's such a sad thing and I think sometimes the adversarial nature of the legal system when someone gets a divorce or deals with custody issues it doesn't always help families it's not always helpful. So true. Jay, in addition to your law uh, work, your activism, you're also involved in community theater. I've seen a couple of the plays that, that you've directed, and they're all fantastic. And I think we could do another hour episode just on your just on your theater background. Um, can I share that you're even your little Zoom name, Broadway Bound? People can know that, but it's not Good. that I'm Broadway bound. It was just the name of a play that we did a reading of last. Well, nonetheless, I like the name, and I want our I want our listeners to know that that's your Zoom name because it's uh, it, it <laughs> for now, you, which, which are all great things. Um, so you know, you you really you know how to balance uh, in life. That's evident. What advice would you give to young people who see a career for themselves similar to the career that you have? Uh, for yourself. So those up and comers in the world, what advice would you give to them? Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think as you get older, more young people contact you and ask you that question. And I love to talk about it. I think my advice is if this is what you want to do, you can do it. 
I consider myself to be the luckiest person in the world. I was able, I didn't want to be a lawyer based on what I learned in law school, what law was about. It's a lot of, you know, research and writing. It's very solitary unless you're a trial attorney. I had to find my niche and I was able to, and I was able to do this work. Sometimes it, you know, it, it involved maybe thinking a little outside the box. You know, our HIV AIDS program, we started it by writing a grant. We got money to do that. That, you know, that was something that never existed. So I feel so lucky and blessed to be able to do what I wanted to do. And I, I would say, follow your heart, follow your passion, and you can do it. You can definitely do it. There's opportunities. Um, you, you can make it happen. And um, it's, you know, it's, Everybody wants to work at the ACLU now, and that's so wonderful. And um, not there's not always as many jobs as what you know for, for people who are interested in working there. But there's so many ways to be involved in social justice issues. You, if you can't do it through your nine to five job, maybe you can volunteer. There's there's a lot of roles, there, and there's a lot of ways that you can be part of this movement. And uh, I love talking with young people about that, how they can make that happen. One more thing that I'd like to add, I'd like to thank you very much. I think our community is blessed to have you in it. And I want you to know, in behalf of um, our Federation, Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit, that we're an open tent. We try to be, at least, that we are inclusive and well, and try to be welcoming. And um, I wish we had more people like you come into our tent and be a part of us. I'm so glad that Sammy introduced our listeners to you because I think you made such wonderful points and hopefully you challenge some of us to go further and be more involved. So thank you, Jay. Well, thank both of you and for the great questions. And, you know, I feel that because I'm part of the Jewish community, that's what guides me. You know, as I said before, that's what guides my work. That's what that's what, you know, encouraged me and influenced me. So it kind of goes hand in hand. And we are a very the Jewish community is a very diverse community. And it's so wonderful to know that the Federation is that open tent. Well, I agree with everything that Beverly said. I'm so glad to know to know you, to have known you and uh, to uh, continue to know you for all the years, God willing, uh, that we have that we have coming for us. So, Jay, we so appreciate you coming on the podcast today and giving our community just a glimpse into the work that you do and that the ACLU does, because uh, you're uh, you're doing God's work. That's for sure. Oh, that's so kind. And it was my pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks, Che. Appreciate it. Our audio engineer and editor is Tim Segrist. You can find Fed Radio Detroit at jewishdetroit.org forward slash Fed Radio or your favorite podcast app, Fed Radio Detroit, Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit. We're here for good.